series we're on it we're talking about it it's about to happen but before we get there we're going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that happened in between i know in the last episode of season one i had already discussed some of the things that but more stuff happens so much (laughs) stuff we just we got to get to it because that's how crazy it was so uh but before we get there introductions as always my name is Matt, coming to you from Austin, and as always, coming from Houston is my brother, Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. Woo-hoo! All right. We are the Brothers Trek About, here to trek about some season two. So let's just get down to it. You know, um, the way the Cashman book starts off season two, book two, as it is for him, uh, is he starts talking about the folklore of the fact that season two or that Star Trek itself didn't make it any further than three seasons because of ratings. But he goes on to kind of disprove this, you know, by saying, especially how season one ended and, you know, what continues to happen going into season two, there's a lot more happening behind the scenes than just plain and simple ratings. Uh, even if, as we will find in the next half hour, 45 minutes, however long this takes, that uh, NBC was not super excited about Star Trek for one reason and one reason alone. But we'll get there. That's a little setup for later. Uh, first of all, I'm going to break down. Well, let's just uh, go back and remember just for a moment how this show got made in the first place. Okay. It, was Lu- it was Lucille Ball who thought right. this was a really good idea. And it was, in a lot of ways, Lucy's cachet, her influence. The people were like, well, Lucy wants to make it. We'll, we'll give it a shot. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that the network was enthusiastic about it. Right. And that now that they're seeing it, they're like, well, I'm not sure anymore. It's more like they were never quite sure. And now they've got a real product. It's not just like, well, Lucy thinks it's a good idea. Yeah. But, you know, now you have this this thing that, you know, won Emmys last year that has been doing all right in the ratings. So, you know, you have, an, as you say, a real product that's actually, you know, doing what it's supposed to be doing, you know. But you can, you can see how it wouldn't necessarily thrill the suits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but here's how it kind of broke down between all the demographics in uh, in season one. Uh, between six to 11-year-olds... Uh, Star Trek was ranked number one. With teenagers ranked 12 to 7th, it was ranked number three behind Time Tunnel. I don't know. Never heard of it. And uh, I Spy. 18 to 34-year-olds picked it as number five under I Spy and three of the various networks' primetime movies. Weird. Uh, Why was that even a choice? 35 to 49-year-olds placed it at number six behind Bonanza and Walt Disney. The 50-plus crowd thought 
least likely to embrace the science fiction series, nevertheless put Star Trek also in the top 10. When the survey asked participants to name their favorite new series, uh, new series, the average together of answers of various age groups, Star Trek was number one there. Adding all of that together, out of 90 primetime shows with uh, all category, categories combined, New Star Trek actually came in number two overall, and it was only bested by Bonanza. Exactly, exactly. At this point, you know, Desi Lou is now really excited. They're, uh, you know, they sent a couple of memos to Gene, you know, congratulating him on, you know, this amazing turnout. But NBC still at this point wasn't quite sure they were going to put it on the uh, the schedule for next year. February rolls along, and the uh, the crew cast and crew are away for summer break, so they get like three months in which they're like able to go off and in motorcycle three... accidents <laughs> or whatever. Yes, <laughs> so. Um... Uh, they're on hiatus basically at this point, but again, without NBC saying, you know, hey, we're going to totally, you know, stand behind Star Trek. We're going to give it a season two. Uh, the Writers Guild wouldn't let the writers write. Roddenberry couldn't pitch ideas to anybody. Nothing could happen. No writing could be done. So they were kind of at the standstill. Even the mirror would turn like a grayish opaque when he tried to pitch to the mirror. <laughs> right? It would just, like, fizz over. Yeah, yeah, I can't see anything. What's going on? <laughs> That's the power of the guilds. So as early as November, Roddenberry was was freaking out about NBC. Uh, he felt already at that point he had wanted, you know, get rid of the show, get rid of him. So Harlan and Ellison, of all people, of course, they hadn't quite, back in November, had their their head-to-head yet, uh, created this thing called The Committee, which was a group of some of the uh, biggest authors in speculative fiction at the time. We're talking like Robert Block, uh, Frank Herbert, Richard Matheson, Theodore Sturgeon, you know, some of these people who even wrote for the show. And they all draft the letter to spread the gospel about Star Trek and say how amazing it was and how awesome it is. So they got a letter-writing campaign going. And... Thousands of letters started pouring into NBC, you know, asking them to turn, you know, to bring back Star Trek. TV Guide was getting like 250 letters a week saying like, NBC really better bring back that show. We really like it. At this point, NBC is like blown away by the fact that this many people have turned out to write about a show that it doesn't feel is even doing all that great. It's got the thought leaders behind it. Right. So, and of course, at this point, you know, Rodberry's getting even more pissed because all this time is just wasting, right? You know, he, you know, he keeps he keeps saying to anybody who will listen, like, if the network could just give us up an earlier pickup date so we can get the scripting done, you know, we could have eight or ten shows completed by the time you know the summer layoff is over. But of course, they couldn't move on because of you know that because mirror. of the writers' guild, yeah, and that mirror that wouldn't let them uh, let them go. So uh, he felt like this was like a, another part of the conspiracy to keep him off at this point. And uh, so making statements like this to the press continued was just another like nail in the coffin for poor Roddenberry, right? So the book kind of lays out at this point like what's happened so far that has pissed NBC off with Roddenberry, right? And it actually goes back to his previous show, The Lieutenant. 
he wrote an episode that was talking about racism in the military and NBC basically refused to air it. So Roddenberry went and rallied a bunch of civil rights groups and said, Hey, you know, we really need this episode to air so people can kind of get an idea of what's happening in the real world, you know, not just in the military. Of course they bring him back, you know, with Star Trek and now NBC's irritated because of, you know, Roddenberry has this, he's fighting the hand that feeds him. Well, yeah, there's that, but also he's, uh, he's got that, you know, the whole like casting couch mentality, right? He's, he's known as this Lothario. Uh, there's the whole thing that happened with, you know, that we talked about last season with Majel Barrett and, you know, trying to hide her under a, a blonde wig. Obviously they were smart enough to see through it. That kind of pissed them off. He became less and less open to Stan Robertson, you know, the NBC production manager guy, uh, his input and uh, got even more pissed when Stan Robertson, you know, directed his notes towards the writer as opposed to, you know, going through him. Then, of course, there were the skimpy outfits. You know, we talked about this as well. The, the mini skirts, the clothes that some of the women are wearing in the show. NBC broadcast standards were forever fretting about the sexy female attire that was seen every week in Star Trek. That was another problem. Roddenberry also was encouraging very provocative storylines, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the hookers in space from the mud episode, uh, you know, Captain Kirk basically raping one of his yeomen, uh, stories that dealt with drugs, you know, other stories that were commentaries on, you know, U.S. foreign policy in Vietnam and whatnot. Uh, also, this planned interracial kiss that almost happened, but then didn't. And of course, you know. Most importantly, they were rarely on budget or on time with their schedule and all of those things. So all of these things just start to compound more and more on Roddenberry and, uh, of course, doesn't make his um, relationship with NBC. Yeah. Yes, what you said. He's not making friends. That's for sure. The good thing is, is that he had a couple of stories that were still backed up in a, in a drawer somewhere. You know, he had the Omega Glory, which uh, we will go on and see. Uh, he's got uh, Tomorrow the Universe, which is from uh, Paul Schneider's, you know, it's going to be his third story after Balance of Terror and the Square of Gothos, Amok Time, Friday's Child, all these things that, you know, are coming down the pike. And he's like, if nothing else, I can rewrite these right now and, and get them going if nothing comes through. All right, by the end of February, Star Trek was now up to 4,600 letters a week. About Star Trek. How about that? That's kind of crazy. Basically demanding the return of the show on the air, making sure that it doesn't get canceled. So uh, right around February 20th, then, NBC sort of blinks a little bit, and the network agrees to put up uh, 13 grand for story development. So Roddenberry and Kuhn immediately start taking pitch sessions. They put Paul Schneider on one, Theodore Sturgeon on one, DC Fontana on one. They're all working on scripts that they had been working on at the end of season one. Robert Block, of course, he returns and uh, does uh, the one we'll be doing next week, Cat's Paw. And uh, what's even funnier is that on March 4th, Star Trek then takes the cover of TV Guide and its episode, Devil in the Dark, wins its time slot. But still, NBC has not yet said whether or not they were going to be picked up for next season or not. It was craziness. Finally, March 9th, NBC cries uncle. Uh, they uh, announced before the Devil in the Dark that, that the series would return in the fall. 
there's an on-air announcement made, which was kind of unprecedented at the time. You know, they had never done that announce like before the show, like, hey, we're going to blah, blah. The biggest thing, though, was that uh, NBC wanted the letters to stop. They're just getting so much mail. Yeah. And they were disrupting, uh, uh, you know, just the regular flow of business on a day-to-day basis. So that's crazy. So when they got the renewal, they just got a renewal for, uh, it wasn't for a whole season. It was just for 16 episodes. Roddenberry and Kuhn gave out 33 assignments anyway, just be, just in case they not only got picked up for a full season, but as they had already learned that sometimes you just don't have enough scripts to get to the end of the season. So they went ahead and uh, made sure that they had plenty. That's uh, which I thought was really funny. Roddenberry in the late eighties was uh, quoted as saying this, I guess I could have been more of a company man. There are plenty of producers who do that, but look at what they produced. Here we are 20 years later with the second series and five movies. Can you say that about Lost in Space? That show had a good time slot, which we never had, but we are still here. So this was another big thing that happened They're at this point. They remade Lost in Space, so they did a couple years ago. Or I well, yeah, yeah, this is in the 80s. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, Netflix is doing it. And actually yeah. what's even funnier is I heard it's not even very good. So, oh. I know, right? Danger Will Robinson. So there was another big issue which was going on about the time slot because by the time the whole rest of the schedule was filled, there were two time slots left. There was Tuesday night between nine uh, between 8.30 and 9.30, this is Eastern time, 8.30 and 9.30, and Friday night from 8.30 to 9.30. Now, of course, everyone at Star Trek was hoping they were going to get the big Tuesday because that would be the perfect time. Kids would be able to watch – Friday night, they knew that their big demographic, right? The teenagers were going to be out on Friday nights going to... The mall shop. Or sock cops or I don't know, whatever <laughs> kids did in the sixties. I have no idea. Uh, the problem is the other time slot that they wanted to give was going to Jerry Lewis. And Jerry Lewis decided, eh, I'll rather take the uh, Tuesday night time slot than the Friday night one. So that was another, uh, so that was another sad times for the cast and crew. All in a world before DVR. Exactly, exactly. You know, uh, it's something. Go ahead. I mean, you know, now they could put it on like Sunday morning at six a.m. and you'll be like, oh, it's just DVR." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So of course uh, they end up with the Friday night slot, and everyone at Desi Lou is trying to make it like, "Oh no, this is going to be great." You know, uh, this is going to be the perfect time. We're going to get the little kids involved in watching the show. It's going to be great. But of course, no one actually believed it. So uh, with the new season came a new budget, and it was an even smaller one. It was uh, now down from one hundred ninety-five thousand dollars per episode to one hundred eighty. $187,500. So far, only four episodes have been made for less than that. The first season cap of 195000 So it'll really be interesting to see where we go in this next season when we get to uh, this even lower budget. See, they, uh, they needed to sell bonds. What do you mean? Well, so you, you convince people that there's a future to Star Trek, mm-hmm. right? which, of course, would be hard... You need how many episodes to get into syndication? Traditionally, a hundred. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I mean, they've got not quite thirty. Yep. You know, so, but you know, convince them this this will really work in syndication, or there's a future to this. Uh-huh. And people are like, yeah, I'll put down. I mean, in a lot of ways, 
you know, the the marketing strategy behind Discovery was that way, right? Right. Yeah. You know, there's a they they took subscriptions as a way to sell, which in a sense is is getting people to buy into the show. Well, funny that you mentioned uh, syndication is, is that part of the reason that they made it a five-year mission was because they were hoping that if they went five years that they'd be able to get into syndication and have no problem for the rest of the show. Little did they know that become what it became. Also, uh, Desilu's, this is a uh, uh, headline in Variety, Desilu's budget soars to a record $21 million for 67 and 68. And the previous year's budget was only $15 million, And they were already breaking the bank. So uh, things were starting to look bad. And then they got worse because a for sale sign went up. Lucy needed to find a buyer or close up shop by the end of the year. What's going to happen? That is uh, some of the uh, crazy stuff we have to look forward to going into season two. We got not only the crazy budgets going on, but we've got this like thing of, of Desi Lou closing hanging over their head. All right, some more fascinating information to come. At the beginning of the season two, much like they had uh, towards the beginning of season one, they started to have more problems again with the, the special effects group. So uh, they sent to their special effects house, hey, can you just give us some generic like enterprise flybys during the summer? You know, uh, just flyby by planets or, you know, any of the just normal like taking off shots. And uh, they asked for 19 of those shots. And after the first three weeks, only got two of them. They ended up having to get another uh, visual effects house involved in it, which they did. So now they had uh, uh, two new visual effects house helping them with all the visual effects for season two. It was also, too, by this point, uh, as we careen into season two, as we discussed a little bit at the end of season one, Spock's popularity started to uh, really go on the rise. So this put uh, some pressure on not only the production, on the production for two different reasons, because A, Shatner, who was like, hey, I thought I was supposed to be the star of this thing. And then you also have Leonard Nimoy himself, who's like, yeah, I just don't really know if I want to do this anymore. So uh, Leonard uh, Nimoy had two concerns, the first of which was that he'd have another year, agonizing year of putting on and taking off uh, the, the ears, right? Because for him, he had to get into uh, he had to get into makeup almost an hour and a half before everybody else. He'd have to be there forty five minutes after the show because he would have to take off set ears. So he was spending more time there and less time with his family. So he was he was really becoming annoyed with the situation. So of course, not surprisingly, Roddenberry's getting a little pissed because. You know, Nimoy is now starting to like, hey, uh, maybe I should get a little more money here. He was making $1,125 per episode. That would be uh, about eight grand in 2013 numbers, which is a respectable paycheck. But uh, he wanted his agent to renegotiate for $3,000 an episode, uh, all the while happy to settle for $2,500. But, uh, of course, this now just adds more problems onto the series because, well, we're already having money problems. And here's this actor who wants more money. And, uh, you know, not only that, but Roddenberry at this point is kind of thinking like, hey, I know Spock's a popular, popular character, but isn't it really all about the ears? Can't we just put the ears on somebody else? And so uh, they kind of did that for a while. Uh, uh, Joe D'Agosta, 
who was the uh, uh, casting director at the time, actually went and looked for another young person to play a Vulcan. And, and, and another not-so-young person. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, I was going to get there, yes. To, uh, uh, but, but they actually hired somebody, which is the crazy part, uh, to play uh, a new Vulcan scientific officer. But yes, also in the running was uh, a Romulan commander we might know from Balance of, Ten- uh, of Terror, and that was Mark Leonard. Uh, so that would have been really weird. I mean, knowing what we know now, that would have been really weird if suddenly, you know, we have this new uh, Vulcan scientific officer and it's played by good old Mark Leonard or Sarek, as we know him. Also on the short list was uh, David Carradine from Kung Fu, which I thought was really funny. But it actually went to Lawrence Montaigne, who was uh, Decius from uh, Balance of Terror, and uh, he was actually hired on and ready to go. Of course, conversations between agents and uh, them um, continued. It even got to the point where Nimoy was just saying like, yeah, I just don't think I'm going to come into work. Now, of course, they had a contract that said you've got to come into work. So Herb Solo, you know, sent in as saying, hey, he's got to report back to work with the contract he currently has or face termination and a lawsuit. Further, should Nimoy think Desilu is bluffing, the studio already has someone ready to take his place. So they were also using this new actor as sort of a negotiating tactic as well. So on April 6th, an incensed letter Nimoy fired off a letter to his own, of his own to Desilu legal rep. Uh, Since the studio has chosen to freeze, a- take a freeze attitude, I am prepared to deal with whatever consequences may arise from my actions. I feel in all fairness that you are entitled to as much advance notice of my intentions as possible. So then a third party got involved. NBC, the original campaigner against the Spock character, hearing through Leonard's agent that he might walk off the show, got really upset. So next thing you know, NBC steps in and says, hey, I don't care what he's asking for. This guy is now on the cover of TV Guide magazine. You know, there are women sending us, you know letters about how much they love Spock and how awesome they think he is. Let's not, uh, let's not get crazy and just pay him whatever he wants. So Nimoy wins the battle. He originally had in mind, uh, but not what he originally had in mind. Uh, he now was now getting paid $2,500 an episode with a raise of $500 per episode for each of the following years. Plus a payment of residuals in- increase through the fifth repeat. That's crazy. So just think of all those years of syndication, you know, the next five years, five, six years that those were in syndication, he got a, he got a cut of all of that as well. Isn't that crazy? Uh, this is also funny too. So Roddenberry had uh, been talking to his friend Isaac Asimov about, you know, this whole situation of what's, ha- uh, what's happening with Spock. And uh, he wrote this really cool thing, which I love. Everybody in the show knows exactly how important and how good Mr. Shatner is. And so do all the actors, including even Mr. Shatner. Still, (laughs) when the fan letters go to Mr. Nimoy and articles like mine, Mr. Spock is dreamy for TV Guide, concentrate on him, one can't help but feeling a little unappreciated. Andy Griffith had to face it when Don Knotts got the Emmys and Sid Caesar when Carl Reiner got them. The problem then is how to convince the world and Mr. Shatner that Mr. Shatner is the lead. It seems to me that one could only 
It seems to me that the only thing one can do is lead from strength. Mr. Shatner is a versatile and talented actor, and perhaps this should be made plain by giving him a chance of a variety of roles. In other words, there should be an effort made to work up story plots in which Mr. Shatner is given the opportunity to put on disguises and take over roles of an unusual nature. So we'll have to see how that unfolds as well in season two and to see if uh, Mr. Shatner gets those chances to become, um, become super cool. And be a true actor in this uh, in this next season. Roddenberry then sent one final letter to Asimov on this subject, writing, Shatner will come off by showing that he is fond of the teenage idol. Spock will do well by displaying great loyalty to his captain. In a way, it will give us one lead. The team. Dun, dun, dun. So I thought that was pretty cool, too. They'd also figured out how important... Uh, DeForest Kelly was as McCoy. So coming into the new season, they'll add him as an also starring or a, he'll get a starring credit. And so you, you, you've kind of, they figured out that there's this trio, that there's this, these three guys. And so in a lot of ways, that's the star. And that was uh, Robert Justman too, who uh, pushed for that. He was, you know, he said, uh, I know that we have, like, no obligation to give him credit in the main titles. I just think that we should. NBC likes the idea, and I think – and they think very highly of DeForest Kelly as a character that he has helped create. So that was another reason that they got that. Um, Kelly's agent also secretly and quietly got him a, a raise from $850 – that's all he was making – to uh, $1,250 per episode. So that's pretty nice. So there's uh, another actor story. Hit me. So, of course, it, Nichelle Nichols was also thinking of leaving. Yep. You know, she's like, you know, is it going anywhere? Or, you know, just kind of a, you know, she's you know, a secondary character, right? Yes. There haven't been any episodes that have centered on her. There have been several, I'm going to say five or six episodes in which she was an important member of the crew. But never one that focused on her. Um, and so it's in a lot of episodes, she really is kind of sitting in the back with not a lot to do. That's part of the problem of any ensemble. I mean, we've had episodes in which Scotty, for example, wasn't even in the show. So she was thinking of leaving after the first season. And, you know, she goes and tells Roddenberry and he's upset. And he says something like, I want you to think about what I'm trying to do here. Achieve with the show. You're a very integral part and very important to it. And so, yes, I want you to think about it over the weekend. Don't just, you know, make your decision hastily. And so she says, sure, you know, I'll, I'll give it some thought. She goes to an NAACP fundraiser. And one of the promoters uh, comes over to her and says, uh, Miss Nichols, there's someone who would like to meet you. He says he's your greatest fan. And I'm thinking... You know, he's a Star Trek fan, a science fiction guy, something like that. And so she turns up, and before, you know, she realizes it, it's Martin Luther King. Uh -huh. And he says, you know, I'm your greatest fan. I'm a, a fan of Star Trek. I'm a fan of, you know, like what they're trying to do there. And she's like, well, I don't know. I'm thinking, you know, maybe I'm going to quit the show. And he's like, no, no, no. We don't need you on the march. We don't need you at, on the barricades. You are marching. You are reflecting what we are fighting for. So I said to him, thank you very much, and I'm going to stay with the show. And so 
in a sense because you know Martin Luther King said you're you're actually participating in the the civil rights struggle by being an example of a technically savvy officer, you know, participating equally as part of this crew. She just decides that she'll go ahead and stay on. I've got much of that same story in the book, but one other thing I just wanted to add that he also said, you are the future. I mean, everything that we are working for is, you know, you're, you're portraying what will still be there in the 23rd century, you know, much like you said, but uh, I just liked how like pointed that was. So uh, of course, then she decides to, you know, hang around and uh, her next contract guaranteed her nine of the next of the first 16 episodes, 650 bucks each which isn't too bad. It's only 200 bucks below what uh, Bones was making or DeForest Kelly was making. So two other people got raises. George Takai was now up to almost $800 an episode with a guarantee of seven out of the next 16. James Doohan remained at $850 with a guarantee of seven as well. Although everyone kind of knew that he was going to be in many more of those. So Sulu has really kind of moved up from a, Sometimes he's a navigator. They didn't really know what to do with him in the beginning. And uh, he's, he really kind of becomes a much more solid character in season two. Yeah. Of course, he gets a buddy. <laughs> right. Which we'll get to. Oh, as which we are getting to, I should say. So, uh, you know, they're crossing all of these bounds. And, you know, they're, we've got uh, – we're trying to show that we are united – Federation of Planets. I know that word hasn't been or that hasn't been used yet, but that's where we're heading towards, right? And another sign of the changing times is that the series producers were becoming more worldly. They recognized, for example, that Russians too are involved in space exploration. <coughs> Ergo, an actor portraying a Russian will become a part of Star Trek the next season. Well, not only that, they were keeping our they were keeping their eyes on the teenage audience, right? Because they knew that that was part of their big thing, and of course. It was hard, as we discussed a couple episodes ago, to uh, not realize how big the monkeys were in the 60s, right? Part of the reason I hit on them so hard is so that we could get to this, because they also wanted to cast a monkey on the show. Not a real monkey, but somebody who looked like, a, like he was one of the monkeys. Somebody with yeah, the, the, the Beatles-style yeah, <laughs> a, a Beatles haircut, basically. Or a wig, as it turns out. <laughs> Yes. Oh, it's so bad in that first episode. It's horrible. It's bad. Roddenberry, apparently. No one's been able to exactly confirm this story, so whether or not this is truth or not. Uh, Roddenberry was told how an article of Pravada, the official newspaper of the Communist Party, criticized Star Trek as being typically capitalistic. Allegedly, Pravda's main complaint was that uh, the ship was supposedly representing all countries on Earth, but that there were no Russians. So, okay. So helping to add validity to the story, which uh, (laughs) many people have dismissed as a publicity stunt, is an October 10th, 1967 letter Roddenberry wrote to Mikhail Zimianin, editor of Pravda, the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Roddenberry informs Zimianin that uh, he had learned of the article concerning Star Trek and that the series is now going to have a Russian serving aboard the Enterprise as well. And his name was going to be Pavel Chekhov. So I thought that was pretty funny. 
actually, uh, what's interesting, and this is something that I didn't know, but it makes sense, is that Takai was sort of a little bit jealous of uh, of of Walter Koenig. Uh, he was like, "Great, now I got this somebody else here who's going to take more of my lines, who's going to be doing, you know, half the stuff that I was doing." Now I got plus he's you know dressed like a monkey, you know, and he's got all this craziness going on. He goes, but by the end of like the second show, I felt so bad for him in that, in that wig <laughs> that I just had to come around and like him. You know, it's, so it's thought, funny because in a lot of ways you'd think there aren't a lot of lines for people at that front panel. Right. right. Most of the use up till now has either been to state the obvious, which would mean take lines away from Sulu so that this new guy could state the obvious or, uh-huh. To have lines Sulu would never have, like, oh, I'm scared, or, uh, you know, I'm saying something totally on Star Trek, so the rest of, you know, the captain can say, that's not how we do things, mister. Right. But what they ended up doing was creating an opportunity for dialogue, which we only saw, like, two or three times. There's the the time where, like, Sulu's cracking jokes all the time because he's talking to the guy next to him. And that's really what ends up, you know, being developed. Yeah. is that Chekhov and Sulu get to talk to each other a lot. And it's more lines, not less. Yeah. Uh, so Koenig was talking, uh, uh, this is a, an interview with Koenig where he was talking about uh, the casting of this role. He says, I was reading with another guy, uh, and afterward I didn't even get to go home. I just kind of sat around for 45 minutes. And then Bill Thies came in and said, uh, hey, follow me. And then he took me to wardrobe, and then they've got this cloth measuring tape out, and they start measuring me. And uh, I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, uh, well, we've got to make you a uniform. You just got hired. <laughs> he goes, I swear, that's how I found out I got the part. No congratulations, <laughs> no ceremony. Just this guy with a tape measure between my legs. Certainly did not have the hint of the significance that Star, Wars, or Star Trek would uh, ultimately have in my life. So I thought that was pretty great. And uh, that's it. Uh, I mean, that's still a lot of stuff. We got... Uh, we got some behind the scenes negotiations going on. We've got new characters being cast. We got NBC who's uh not loving Roddenberry or anything else he's doing and then uh and that's it. We got I mean I think that's all important stuff to know as we continue on into this next season cuz it's all going to it's all going to pay off for better or for worse. I'm going to bring uh, up one up. other group. Yeah, go ahead. So within Desilu there was a group of people who thought they were protecting Lucy by making sure that the company never took a gamble that could, that could Heaven's Gate uh, Desilu, right? Mm-hmm. Heaven's Gate destroyed, basically, United Artists, right? And, and so they were always fearful of Star Trek as this kind of thing that could, like, suck out all the monies and then leave, leave Lucille Ball with nothing. And so they, they were also wary of Star Trek and looking for a way to get out. So we'll see how this plays out in the future. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. A uh, completely informative and somewhat uninteresting episode of uh, The Brothers Check About. Again, I think all important stuff, stuff we need to know going into the next season. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, it's hard to be goofy when you're talking about facts, man. That's all I'm saying. Uh, on that astonishing uh, piece of information, I'm going to salute and say goodbye. Have a great one. We'll see you all. Oh, oh yeah. Hey, by the way, next week is not 
the episode I thought it was. Next week, I thought we were going to be seeing a muck time, but no. There's an episode called Cat's Paw that's next week. Do you want to know something? <laughs> I didn't even know there was an episode called Cat's Paw. That's how crazy that is. So, boy, oh, boy, tune in next week for that one because, whoo, oh, boy, what an episode. The writer with Robert Block, right? Yeah. yeah He's yeah, also yeah. the guy that wrote the book that became the movie Psycho. Oh, really? I did not know that. All right. Good information to have. Well, on that note, for the third and final time. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. My name is Matt. Coming to you from Austin and from Houston. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There you go. And we will see you all next week. <laughs>